Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys here at, uh, at the Medina East Campus as we're continuing in a series that we started now five weeks ago uh, that we've been calling a 90-day trek through the Bible. And uh, as you can probably tell just from the title, what we've been doing in this series is we've been taking a, a period of about 90 days and we've been overviewing the entire Bible. And so like I said, we're about five weeks into this. And uh, the big reasons that we're doing this really is we said that the Bible, man, this is one of those books that a lot of people uh, build their lives on, they build their faith on. A lot of people claim um, that this is the foundation of what they believe in their faith system. And we said, but in our culture today, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of ambiguity and questions that people have about the Bible. And so it's for that reason that we said, hey, why don't we just take the whole summer, this 90-day period, and let's just go over the whole Bible. Let's just overview the entire thing and ask some big questions like, what is the Bible about? And how are we to understand the Bible? And so that's what we've been doing. And in addition to that, one of the things we've also been challenging everyone in our campus to involve themselves in is we've challenged everyone to actually engage in the Bible um, during this 90-day period. And so if you were with us five weeks ago, you might remember we actually issued several reading challenges out to people. We have uh, different reading plans to various degrees of intensity. And we said we would love it if every person in our campus, from the kids all the way up to the adults, um, engaged in the Bible on a daily basis. And so some of you have been doing that, and that's been awesome. Some of you have started that, and then maybe you've kind of tapered off a little bit. And that's okay. Get back on it if you get a chance to. And I'm just saying that if you're a person that's newer here, if you don't have a reading plan, we would really encourage you to grab one of those. You can start that anytime. And so we have um, reading plans for you in the cafe and we also have a bunch of other creative resources to kind of supplement that because we really want people, um, all of us, to really get um, involved in the Bible in some way or another. So each week, kind of overviewing the Bible. Let me just, before we jump into today's, uh, today's topic, let me just do a quick recap for anyone who maybe has uh, been out or has missed the past couple of weeks. So basically, when we started this series, we began with a very, very, very basic question. And the question that we started this whole series off with was just this. We said, hey, what is the Bible? Like, what is this? Um, where does it come from? Where do we get it? Uh, how, how have we got the Bible that we, that we got? How do we know it's trustworthy? And we just kind of started with that, with that question. And the whole first week, we just started dealing with some of the preliminary things, like where did the Bible come from? And, and how do we know that, it, that it's accurate? And, and, and how did we get the Bible that we're holding? So we kind of dealt with that the first week that we were together. Then after that, we asked another really basic question. And, and the next basic question that we asked was just real simply this, what's the Bible about? What is, the, what is the story of the Bible, right? Because the Bible has a lot of stories in it, has a lot of stuff in it. So what's kind of like the main theme of the Bible? And just to review, real basic, in a nutshell, we said this. The Bible, if you want to know what the Bible is, in a nutshell, the Bible is God's rescue plan. That's what we said. We said, man, cover to cover, what the Bible is trying to do is it's trying to explain to us not only God's desire to rescue us and to save us, but it also describes to us the full extent of what that looks like, that God is rescuing each one of us. So we said, that's God's rescue plan. And we said, this rescue plan that God has given us, that we call our Bible, is a very comprehensive plan. And one of the things we said is that the Bible explains to us how deep and how far God goes to save us. And we said, the Bible really tells us three things. It tells us what we're saved from, the Bible tells us what we're saved by, and the Bible tells us what we're saved to. And so each week as we're, we're going through this series, we're talking under these different headings, what we're saved from, what we're saved by, and what we're saved to. And we're talking about how the Bible describes that. And so today, as we continue in this series, the topic that I want to talk about today is this. That the Bible explains to us that we are saved from wrath, that we are saved from God's wrath. 
All right, now I, I know that um, even simply by the title of this, this message and this conversation we're going to have today, you can probably already tell it's going to be a little bit touchy. And the reason is because, well, a couple different reasons. Number one, the topic of God's wrath, let's just be honest, this isn't a popular thing to talk about. In fact, I, I wonder if, for those of you maybe who kind of grew up around the church, I wonder how many messages maybe you've heard on this topic of God's wrath before. Not real popular to talk about. And in our culture, this is certainly not popular. Uh, we love to talk about God's forgiveness. We love to talk about God's mercy. And we love to talk about God's kindness. But oftentimes when it comes to God's wrath, we have a difficult time having this conversation. You see, I think the reason is because many modern thinkers today, and I would just say myself included on this, we, one of the difficulties that we have with the Bible when we read the Bible is we have a hard time um, dealing with the tension of God's love, which is so explicitly spelled out for us in the Bible. You can't avoid it. There's so many verses about the incredible love of God, the kindness of God, the compassion of God, the forgiveness of God. You can't avoid that when you read the Bible. But some of us have a difficulty because we don't know how to navigate the tension of the love of God with what the Bible also teaches so explicitly, which is the wrath of God or the judgment of God or the anger of God. And I'm just telling you, you see it in the Bible. In fact, for some of you, um, if you're a person who's kind of investigating the whole God thing, and, and you're not real sure what you believe yet, maybe this is the first time you kind of went in the Bible, my guess is for some of you, this might be the problem that you have with the Bible. Like, see, that's my problem right there. Um, I, I, I can't reconcile how a God of love, a God of kindness, would allow such terrible things to happen, and we see um, it with God's wrath in the Bible. Some of us have a hard time with that. In fact, to be honest with you, this is one of the tensions I've been facing recently too. One of the things I've been doing, um, like many of you, is I've been jumping in on a reading plan, and the reading plan I'm trying to do over the course of this 90 days is I'm trying to read the whole Bible in 90 days. And it's the big one. And I'll just be honest, man, it is really, really challenging. But it's really good um, just getting in the Bible in that way. But the thing that I've been finding is every day as I've been going through this reading plan, I find myself confronted with this tension. The tension of God's love and kindness and God's wrath and God's anger and his judgment. And every day I see it because as, as I read through my Bible plan, I'm just saying, man, I go, I go through the Bible and I see these verses and some of these verses just jump out at me. Like they're just these awesome, epic verses about the love of God and the faithfulness of God. And so like I read a verse like Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. If you were here a couple weeks ago, Clark taught on that. And I'm like, man, what a good verse, you know, I want to get that, you know, I want to memorize that, get it tattooed somewhere. You know, I want to put that up in the, on a wall in the nursery or something like that. These are great verses. Or like uh, in, in uh, I believe it's in the, in the book of Exodus again, where God says, man, the Lord, the Lord, he is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. I'm like, man, yeah, get that embroidered on a pillow, throw it somewhere, right? And it's good stuff, but let's just face it, the same time, the same time, right? And sometimes in the same passage, there's another set of verses, and they speak about God's judgment or God's wrath. So, for example, there's a verse for, we'll say something like this. It'll say, and then God's anger was aroused, and he caused the ground to swallow up 500 people, and they died. And you're like, man, what am I supposed to do with that? I'm not putting that on a nursery wall. Like, that's a, and, so, and, and so the tension exists, right? But the truth is, when you read the Bible, it's, it's unavoidable, because the Bible speaks about God's wrath and judgment as much as it speaks about God's love and his kindness, so how do we reconcile that? Well, here's, what I wanna, here's where we want to go today. I want to I explain to us, hopefully, we can, we can look at this in Scripture, that when the Bible tells us that God has rescued us, that one of the ways that God has rescued us 
is that he has rescued us from his wrath. That is to say this, God has saved us and his salvation is complete. He has rescued us and God has rescued us from Satan and that's true, he has. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Clark talked about how we've been saved from slavery. Not only have we been saved from Satan, the Bible tells us we've been saved from sin. And Seth talked about that last week, about how each one of us in our own um, failings, in our own imperfections, we have, we have fallen short of God's standard. So God has saved us from Satan. God has saved us from ourselves. But today I wanna talk about this idea that God has also saved us from himself. Uh, that sounds really strange, I know, but uh, let me try to explain myself. And that might not even be the best way to put it. And so let me just show you what I'm talking about. If you've got your Bibles, take them with me. We're going to go to Numbers 21. Uh, Numbers chapter 21 this morning. So get your Bibles and go there if you want to. And uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that's not a problem. We actually have some Bibles for you out in those chairs. You can just grab those. Turn to page 107. That's where we're going to find Numbers chapter 21. All right, so 107 in those Bibles that we have laid out there for you. And I'll also just say that if you're um, a guest with us this morning, you don't have a Bible, like you just don't own one. I don't know if you can tell, even from the first couple of minutes, we think this is a pretty important book. And so you can have one of ours, all right? Just take one if you don't have one of your own. All right, so Numbers chapter 21. As you guys are flipping to Numbers 21, um, let me give you just a brief background on what's going on. So um, God's chosen people, a nation called the, the, the nation of Israel, uh, the Israelites, the Bible tells us that they spent 400 years in slavery to the nation of Egypt. And the Bible says that the Israelites called out to God. They said, God, please save us from this captivity. And God, through a series of miraculous events, delivered his people from Egyptian captivity. And some of you might remember this. He sent Moses. Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And then through a series of miracles, God released the Israelites from Egyptian captivity. The Bible tells us after the Israelites were freed from Egyptian captivity, they spent the next 40 years in the wilderness wandering around. They had no home, and they found themselves in a place where they wandered around in circles in the wilderness for a period of 40 years. The Bible tells us that the reason that this happened was because God wanted to test them. He wanted to test their hearts. He wanted to test their trust in him. So the Israelites were constantly in a place of need. And so when they needed water, they would cry out to God, and God would provide water in miraculous ways. When they needed food, God would, would provide food for them. In fact, on one occasion, we're told that God provided this miraculous food from heaven called manna, which the word manna literally means, what is it? And they're like, what is this stuff? And they're like, well, that's what we'll call it, you know? And they would eat it, and it gave, and God provided it for it, and it gave them all the nutritional value that they needed. And so God provided faithfully for his people. Well, by the time we get to Numbers chapter 21, we're told that the Israelites have now been meandering around in the wilderness for a few decades, and they begin to grow impatient. And this is where I want to pick up our story. So let's take a look. It starts off in verse 4. Let's check this out. So it says, they, the Israelites, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. Basically, just to summarize, I know geography, these, these names might not mean much to you, but if you look at the pattern that they're taking, they're basically walking in circles. And so the Bible says that after a few decades of them being in the wilderness, they're walking in circles. And then look at this. It says, but the people grew impatient on the way. And then they spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. And some of you have translations that says, we detest this manna the miraculous bread that God had provided for his people. So what's going on here? Well, the Bible says that the Israelites, they're tired, 
They've been in the, the desert for a few decades now. Um, they're weary, they're hungry, they're thirsty, they're tired of eating the same thing every day. And so what do they do? They start to complain. They start to grumble. They start to murmur, some of your translations say. And notice they're grumbling. What do they grumble about? Well, first they grumble against God. They're like, God, this is your fault. We were way better off when we were in slavery in Egypt. And you brought us out here, and now we're just going to die. And why would you do this to me, God? Ugh. So they grumbled against God. And then the Bible says they grumbled against Moses, their leader. They said, we don't even like this guy, this Moses leading us around. Who does he think he is? We don't like him. God, why did you put us in this situation? We don't like this guy. And then the Bible says they looked at God's miraculous provision, the manna, and they said, and we hate this stuff. We're tired of eating this stuff every single day. And what's going on here? What is this? Well, you guys know what this is, right? Anyone who has a toddler knows what's happening right here, right? This has got all the symptoms of a temper tantrum, doesn't it? This is a temper tantrum. We all know this when we see it. Right now, I know this real well. We got me, my wife and I, we have two boys um, right now. Well, we've, we've had two boys for a long time, so not just right now. Um, but our oldest is five. Our youngest is four. And so we've seen a lot of temper tantrums in our time. In fact, right now, um, one of my boys, who I will not name, um, he is a dearly loved child. Uh, but he is going through this season right now, I hope it's a season at least, where he is just, I mean, the whiniest kid alive. He's the sweetest kid, but he's just, he whines. My wife and I call him our wine bag. Uh, we, call, we call him the Crab Master Deluxe. And he's just, he's crabby, he's whiny. And, uh, and so we see these temper tantrums. So this week, for example, we, we had Bible camp going on. You guys saw the recap video. And one of the cool things we get a chance to do at Bible camp is uh, every, every day we take offering. And then at the end of the week, we take that offering and we'll give it to another ministry in need. And so this year, uh, we gave it all to an orphanage in Uganda to these kids who um, didn't have enough food to eat every day. And so it's cool because I was with my boys at home and I was giving them money to give to the offering um, for the Uganda orphanage. And I gave my one son, who I won't name, I gave him some money and he wanted to pocket it for himself, you know. And I was like, buddy. I was like, that, that's, for the, that's for the kids in, in Uganda. I was like, they only eat one meal a day. Can you imagine if you only eat one meal a day? I said, if you only ate one meal a day, wouldn't that be terrible? And I was trying to appeal to his sympathetic side, which is not a good idea with a four-year-old. And I was like, isn't that, isn't that a good thing, though? And, and, and he looks at me, starts welling up with tears. He goes, but Dad, if I don't have any money, I'll die. I'm not, not even joking. Like... Totally exaggerated, like, not like I'll be broke, not like I won't have my, I'll die. And I said, I was like, I was like, buddy, I was like, do you honestly think that if you run out of money, your dad is going to let you die? And he goes, yeah. You know? And it's just, it's so exaggerated. It's so over the top, man. That's, that's exactly what's going on with the Israelites. Exaggerated. God, you've done this to us. We were better in Egypt in slavery. Yeah, okay, right? We're better off there, and we hate this food. You know how you miraculously provided this food for us every day? We hate it. And Moses, who's this guy? They're complaining against God. And, and I'm just telling you, this isn't just something that happens with toppers, and this isn't just something that happens with Israelites. Let's just be honest here, all right? This is human nature, isn't it? Because let's just be honest. The Bible explains to us that the Bible is not just a history book. The Bible is a mirror. That's what it says in James. It's intended that when we look at it, we see ourselves. I don't know about you guys, but when I look at this, I see myself sometimes. You guys see that? Am I the only one? You guys ever see yourself? Is there anyone else in this room who when you find yourself in a situation that is less than ideal, your gut reaction is to immediately complain to God about it? Is there anyone else who does that? Anyone else besides me? 
who, who whenever you find yourself in a situation where things aren't going completely perfect, that you're like, God, why would you let this happen to me? I can't believe it. My cell phone is out of battery. Is there anyone else who just, exact, anyone else? Right? Is there anyone else in this room who begged God for something and then God turned around and gave it to you and provided it? And then later on, you looked at the very thing that he gave you and you said, I detest this thing that you gave me. Anyone else do that? Anyone, anyone ever say, God, please, please give me a spouse, please. I don't want to be single the rest of my life. I don't want to be alone. Please provide me this. And then God, in his loving kindness, provided you a spouse. Not a perfect spouse because there's no such thing, right? No one's perfect. But now, years later in marriage, you look at that spouse and you say, God, I don't like that one. He's broken. Get me a better one, right? Does anyone else do that? Does anyone else beg God, God, please give me a job. Please, I just need a job. And if you just give me this job, I'll never ask for another thing in my life. And then you got the job. God gave you the job. And then you look at the job, and what do you do? Now you say, I hate that job. So tired all the time. My boss, what a, you know, he's a jerk face. And, and anyone, else, anyone else do that? I'm just saying, when I see this, I see myself. Right? This isn't just the Israelites, this isn't just toddlers, this is human nature. And so they grumble and they complain against God. So what does God do? Well, watch this, verse six. Then the Lord gave them all a big hug and told them it was gonna be okay. <laughs> is that what he did? Then the Lord patted them on the head and said, they're there. Is that what God did? Now, look at this. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many of the Israelites died. And I'm like, whoa, right? This is not the verse you're putting on the nursery wall. Not this one. And I think that for many of us, our natural knee-jerk reaction, and mine included, when I read this, is I think to myself, man, doesn't that seem a little bit disproportionate? I mean, isn't that, doesn't that seem like it's a little bit of an overreaction? I mean, sure, the Israelites were grumbling and complaining, and that's not cool. But to, like, kill them, to send snakes that will bite you and kill you, doesn't that just seem like it's a little bit of an overreaction? Like, that's God's play. Like, God's play is like, oh, you don't like my food, huh? Well, here's some snakes to kill you then. Those are your two options. Like, when I read that, I'm like, man, is that, is that what God's like, right? And for some of us, we feel that way. What's going on here? What's happening in this passage? Well, let me just tell you what's going on in this passage. What we have here is we have one of several pictures that we find in the Bible. In fact, one of over 600 occurrences in Scripture of the wrath of God. So we have here the wrath of God. Now, I know once again, that when we talk about God's wrath, that it's very misunderstood. So I think it would be a good idea for us just to pause for a minute and to do a little bit of clarity and talk about what exactly is the wrath of God. So let me try to clarify this because like I said, there is a lot of misunderstanding around this topic. And so let me just go ahead and explain what the wrath of God is. And I think the best place to start when we talk about what the wrath of God is, is to talk about what the wrath of God is not. So let's start there. First and foremost, just be straight on this, the wrath of God is not impulsive. It's not impulsive. Contrary to what we just, you know, you, we read this and you think to yourself, well, sure, it looks like God's impulsive in his, in his wrath. No, 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 God is not impulsive. The only reason we think that we read this is because we're reading it, um, we don't know the full context, which we'll get to here in a minute. 
But in the Bible, when you read about God's wrath, you come to learn that God is not impulsive in his wrath. That is to say, God is not some road rage, fly off the handle, loose cannon, short fuse God, who just, man, he loses it, and that's the end. That's not God. That's not him. In fact, whenever God's wrath is talked about in the Bible, it's almost always coupled with his patience. The Bible says that he is slow to anger. The Bible explains God as being a God of long-suffering. And so his wrath is not something that's impulsive. As a matter of fact, there are several passages in the Bible that tell us that God will oftentimes be patient before he pours his wrath down on a person or on a group of people. And so for, I'll just give you a couple examples. In Genesis chapter 15, there's a nation called the Amorites, and the Amorites did terrible, terrible, terrible things. And God said, I'm going to bring my wrath on them. But then he said something interesting. He said, but I'm not going to do it yet because their wickedness has not reached full measure. That's what God says. In other words, he says, I'm going to be patient with them because their wickedness has not reached a point of no return. It's another passage in Genesis chapter 6. And some people have a hard time with this. In Genesis chapter 6, some of you might remember, God floods the world and he annihilates humanity, saving only Noah and his family. Many of us read that. We say to ourselves, man, how could God, how could a loving God do something like that? But we don't realize is that in that very same passage when God floods the earth, that before God does it, you know what he says? The Bible says he looks down at the earth and he's heartbroken. And the Bible says this, that he saw that every impulse of everyone's heart at every time was only evil all the time. So the Bible says God looked down at the world and he said it's, it's, beyond, the past, it's on, beyond the point of return. It's so wicked, it's so evil that the only thing that people do is wickedness and evil. One more passage I'll give you. There's several. But in the book of Jonah, the Bible explains that there's a nation called the Ninevites. And the Ninevites did things that were so horrendous that it would make Nazi Germany blush. That's how bad they, I mean, ter- you read history books on the Ninevites, terrible stuff. And the Bible says that God's wrath was evoked and he was gonna pour his wrath down on that group of people. But before he did, you know what he did? He sent Jonah. And he said, Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to tell them that my wrath is gonna come on them unless they turn and they repent. And if they repent, then I will relinquish my wrath. And the Bible says that Jonah does that. And they do repent and they do turn from God's wrath. We see it in the Bible. Over and over again in scripture, what we see, God's wrath is not impulsive. He's patient, long-suffering, slow to anger, abounding in love, right? Even in this passage, the one we just read, We just read this one passage this morning, but what you don't understand is that these Israelites have been in the wilderness for three decades. And you know what they've been doing for three decades? The Bible's pretty clear on this. They've been disobeying God, they've been rebelling, and they've been grumbling. From the day that they're released from Egyptian captivity, Exodus 14, Clark taught on this a couple weeks ago, the Bible says that the Israelites released out of Egyptian captivity and they went free and God parted the Red Sea and it was a miracle. Exodus 15, they're grumbling against God. God, why did you bring us out here? Just to die? They're they're worshiping other gods, created gods that they made. And every subsequent chapter, practically, after Exodus chapter 14, is about the rebellion, about the disobedience of God, of the Israelites to God. And so they, 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 they don't have any water. They say, God, we don't have any water. Are you trying to kill us? And then God, in his loving mercy, gives them water. And they say, oh, we don't have any food. God, can you give us food? And God, in his loving mercy, provides manna from heaven. And they say, God, we don't have what we need. And God again provides, and God again provides. And finally, by the time we get here to Numbers chapter 21, God says, all right, you know what? That's enough. That's enough. Your complaining and your grumbling and your disobedience and your rebellion against me has reached its full measure. And so wrath is the result. You know, the image 
that the Bible uses about the wrath of God. And again, like I said, this stuff isn't popular. But the image that the Bible uses about the wrath of God, in fact, it's used several times. It's used in Jeremiah 25, Isaiah 51, Ezekiel 23, Revelation 14, Revelation 16, just to name a few. It's the Bible says that the wrath of God is like a cup or it's like a bowl. And the Bible says that it fills up and that the, that, that's, that the sins and rebellion against man is like a drip, drip, drip into that. And the Bible explains that when that wrath reaches full measure, that God will then pour that wrath out. And that's the imagery the Bible gives us. In fact, the, the illustration that comes to my mind, um, and this might sound a little morbid, um, but is uh, the Great Wolf Lodge. Have any of you guys ever been to the Great Wolf Lodge? It's an indoor kids water park. And so this might sound morbid comparing the wrath of God to an indoor kids water park, but, but I, this is what comes to my mind. Uh, one of the staple features of the Great Wolf Lodge is they have this giant bucket it is a thousand gallon bucket. And what it does is over the course of about 10 or 15 minutes, it just fills up, just fills up, just fills up. And then once it reaches full measure, a bell rings and, and the bell lets you know this thing's about to tip. And when it tips, I mean a thousand gallons of water just goes. In fact, I, I brought a picture of it just to show you. This is kind of what happens. And the kids love it and they scream and they have a good time, right? And, and that's why this is a morbid analogy um, because the wrath of God is similar to that except it's not fun, right? And it's like it, it fills up, it fills up. And, and human sin and rebellion and grumbling against God, it fills up and then it gets to a point where God says enough and he pours it down. He's patient. Now, why, why does God let it fill up? Why does God allow that bucket to fill up? Well, here's why. The Bible tells us the reason that God does that is because he's patient and because his desire is that we would turn from our wicked ways and turn to God and experience forgiveness. The Bible explains to us that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. That's what it says in the book of Ezekiel. God doesn't like this. And so he's patient. And the Bible, it says that God's kindness is intended to lead us to a place of repentance. The scripture tells us about God's wrath. And you need to know something too. You need to know that this imagery of the wrath of God filling up and being poured out is not just an Old Testament thing. It's not. In fact, did you know that in the book of Revelation, it tells us that at the end of all things, that there is going to be a judgment from God that's going to take place that is like none other that we've seen before. I know that's not a popular thing to say, but I would be lying if I didn't say so. The Bible says that God is storing up his wrath and on that last day, he will pour it out in an act of final judgment. That's gonna happen. That's what the Bible tells us. And so listen, please understand, God's wrath is not impulsive. It's not impulsive. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. So, so what is God's wrath? All right, well, let's just start here. Here's what God's wrath is, just real simple. God's wrath is God's anger. Just plain and simple, God's wrath is God's anger. In fact, in the Hebrew, the word for wrath, which is used over 600 times, um, is the Hebrew word which means nostrils. Now, that sounds kind of strange, right? It means nostrils, but what is, what is that talking about? Well, basically, it's anthropomorphic, right? And, and what it's referring to is that the universal face that humans make when they're mad is we tend to tighten our lips, we tend to grit our teeth, and we flare our nostrils, right? That's kind of what we do. In fact, some of you did this this morning when you were trying to get the kids in the minivan, right? You're like, get in the van! I'm gonna do you ever notice how after it goes, it starts intelligibly and then it like degrades? You're like, get in the van, you know? And we, we, we flare our nostrils. That's the universal sign of anger. In fact, why don't you turn to the person that you came with today and show them your nostrils. Give them, flare your nostrils at them, right? 
And so when the Bible says that God is wrathful, that God is angry, it's referring just simply to this emotion, that God is God's anger. A plain and simple, it's God's anger. Now right there, I know that for some of you, this whole conversation has got you uneasy. And the reason it's got you uneasy is because you're like, look, this is just the thing. I don't like that, okay? I don't like the idea of a God who's wrathful and angry. I like a forgiving, I like a loving, I like a kind God, but I don't want this wrathful, angry, uh, you know, judgmental, I don't like that. And you know what happens is, as, as a result of that, many people in our culture today will either avoid this topic altogether, which if you read the Bible is impossible, because the Bible talks about God's wrath as much as it talks about his love. So we'll either avoid it altogether, or worse, we'll reject it outright. We'll just say, well, that's not my God. My God's not like that. My God's the forgiving, loving, caring, kind God. He's not the wrathful God. He's not the God who sends the serpents to bite the people. That's not my God. And let me just, I just want to challenge that for a second. I just want you to think about that. Because what I want to propose to you is this. I believe that if it's impossible to have a God of real love without having a God of anger. I don't think it's possible. Just think about it for a minute. Is it not true that the more deeply you love something, that the more deeply you care for something and you're invested in something, that the more susceptible to anger that you become? Isn't that true? Not, not in spite of your love, but because of it. Not true. That when you really care for something or you care for someone, when something threatens that or when something deceives that or when something harms that, it evokes anger. So for, for example, I just think it is something I really love. I, I really love my family. I love my family, not, not perfectly, but I, I love my family. And I'm just saying, because I love my family, if anything threatens them, if anyone wants to hurt my kids or wants to deceive my wife or wants to, it makes me angry, not in spite of my love, but because of my love. In fact, you might even argue this, that if you were hurting my kids and I didn't get mad, I probably don't care. See, the truth is love and justice are activated together. They're, 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 not, they're not contradictory to each other. They're complementary of each other. They're two different sides of love. And look, God is a God of deep love. He looks at the world that he created. He looks at his children, you and I as humans. And the Bible says that he loves us so, so deeply that anytime something threatens that, anytime someone deceives us, anytime that creation is degraded in any way, it evokes God's anger, not in spite of his love, but because of his love. Because he loves us. And so listen, whenever someone sins against you and they hurt you and God sees that, he says, you know what? I'm not cool with that. That's my child. I love them. Whenever someone deceives you and harms you, God looks at that and he says, I am not okay with that. That's my kid. I love them. And listen, the opposite is true too. Whenever you hurt someone else, Whenever you speak slanderously about somebody or you gossip about somebody or you say something to elevate yourself and make yourself look good and make that other person look bad, God looks at that and he says, ah, hey, hold on a minute. That's my child you're talking about. I am not okay with that. And God's anger is activated, not in spite of his love, but because of it. Listen, whenever we take something that God has created and it's intended to be good, like sex. Sex is a great thing that God has created in the context of marriage as he's designed it. 
And every time we take that and we degrade it, God says, hey, I am not okay with that. I'm not cool with that. And so, and so when you look at pornography and God sees that, he says, hold on a minute. That is my child you're looking at. And you are contributing to the degradation of this world and evil. And I am not cool with that. Whenever you commit sexual immorality, it's what the Bible calls it. It's basically sex outside of marriage in any way, whether it be extramarital or premarital. God looks at that and he says, no, hold it. I'm not cool with that. That's my child. And the the person that you're committing an affair against, that's my son or my daughter. And I am not okay with that. And listen, you gotta understand, God is forgiving and God is love, but God is full of anger, not in, spite of his, not in spite of his love, but because of his love. And so what is God's wrath? God's wrath is first and foremost, it's his anger. Secondly, I'll say this, and I'll go quick here. God's wrath is just. God's wrath is fair. And, and you know, we read passages like this, and we're like, man, that just seems so out of balance. That seems so disproportionate that God would react this way to those people. The truth is, God's anger, God's wrath against humanity is completely justifiable. It's totally fair. And when we, when we fail to understand that, it usually reveals two things. And I won't dig too much into it because Seth talked about this last week. But it reveals to us, number one, that we probably have underestimated the seriousness of sin. Sin is a really big deal, a really big deal to God. Now, Seth talked about that last week. If you want some more on that, you can check that out. It also reveals to us this, that we don't understand the holiness of God. God is not like us, right? He is so different. He is so other. He is so perfect that, that the wrath of God, really what it does is it reveals to us the distance between God's holiness and our sinfulness. That's what wrath does. In fact, that's why the writer of uh, the book of Romans in Romans chapter three, the apostle Paul says it this way. He says, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? See his argument here? It's like, what should we say? That God's the one who's unfair? Is that what we should say? He says, certainly not. If that were true, how could God judge the world? In other words, what the apostle Paul is saying is, it's not that God's unfair, it's that we're wrong, not that he's wrong. And, and look, God's wrath is totally just. And God is patient, his, his wrath is not impulsive. His wrath is his anger. His wrath is just. And then here's the last thing I'll say about it. God's wrath is upon us. And I don't, this, is, this is the hardest part of this message, and I hope you can see that, that, that this is not an easy thing to talk about. But the truth is that God's wrath is on every one of us. It's on me. It's on you. The Bible says in the book of Colossians that every act of sin and every act of disobedience, because of those things, the wrath of God is coming. That's what the Bible says. In the book of Romans, it says that we are storing up for ourselves God's wrath. It's the imagery the Bible gives us. Look, and the scary news is this. None of us are perfect. None of us have, there's not one person in this room that thinks we have it together, right? One of the things that's, that's very true about this church is this church is full of really messed up people. And, and the primary of them most is on the stage right now. We're screwed up, right? We're, we're more messed up than we think we are, is what Seth said last week, and he's so right about that. But it's because of that imperfection, it's because of our sin, that God's wrath is on every single one of us. It's directed against us. It's the bad news. But there's good news. If we left the message there, we'd be hopeless, but there's good news, right? And the good news is that God is so incredibly loving 
and that his rescue plan is so comprehensive that he hasn't simply provided a way to save us from Satan and he hasn't simply provided us a plan to save us from sin, but he has provided us a way to save us from his wrath. You're like, how? Well, take a look, I'll show you. Watch what happens in Numbers. This next thing that takes place in the book of Numbers is gotta be one of the weirdest things in the whole Bible. Watch this, verse seven. The people came to Moses and they said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Please pray to the Lord that he'll take away the snakes from us. And so Moses prayed for the people, right? So the people come to Moses and they say, we're so sorry, we messed up. Notice they don't blame God, they blame themselves. This is our fault. We're the ones who have brought God's wrath on us. Would you please pray for us, Moses? Pray for us that God would deliver us from this. Moses says, okay. And so Moses goes to God and he prays. And then God answers him. And I want you to see God and Moses' dialogue here. This is so strange. Look at this, verse eight. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake. Put it on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and then they'll live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, and then when anyone was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Man, is that weird. That is so bizarre. And you know what's really weird? Is this passage doesn't explain it. It just goes on. You notice the next verse in verse 10, it says, and then the Israelites went to the next city. And I'm reading, I'm like, wait, wait, hold on a second. What the heck was with the snakes? What was that all about, right? And that's gotta be one of the weirdest remedies that God's ever, um, that God's ever prescribed or something like that. I, I, in my mind, when I read this, I almost imagined a dialogue between Moses and God and how that must have looked. And I'm sure it probably didn't look like this, but I imagine that Moses probably comes to God and he's like, look, God, um, those people are getting bit by these snakes. It's real bad. And they've asked me to pray for them. And I imagine that God's like, all right, well, I'll tell you what, Moses, I got a remedy in mind. And Moses is probably thinking, okay, what's it gonna be, God? Like a pill? Uh, is there like a vaccine or anti-venom? Like, what are we gonna do this time? God's like, no, I got something different in mind this time. Got something different. You got a, you got a notebook, Moses? I was like, sure, I got it. He gets out a notebook, you know? He's like, all right, you writing this down? Got it, yep. All right, here's the first thing. I want you to get some bronze. All right, it's bronze. Get some bronze. Pick some up at the store. Got it, all right? And then God's like, all right, here's what I want you to do with that bronze, all right? Taking notes? Got it, okay? I want you to make it into a snake, okay? But form the bronze into a s- snake, you mean like the snakes that are biting everyone and killing them? Yeah, that's right. Okay, you sure you don't want to make it into something different? Like a teddy bear? No, a snake. All right. Okay, you're God. I'm not going to question it because every time I do, you're right. So make a bronze snake. It doesn't make any sense. God's like, I know it doesn't make any sense, but here's the next thing I want you to do. Put on a pole. On a pole. Okay, snakes on a pole. Snakes on a pole. Yeah, snakes on a pole. Not to be confused with Samuel Jackson's snakes on a plane. That comes out a few thousand years later, and it's not a very good movie, right? So it's like, all right, snake's on a pole. Got it. All right, so and then Moses has got to be thinking, this is so weird, God. He's like, all right, so when the people get bit by the snakes, how is this serpent going to heal them? Do they have to, like, hug the snake or kiss the snake or bow down to the snake? God's like, no, nah, just look at it. Look at it. Yeah, just look at the snake, and then you're, you're totally healed. Moses had to have been like, that is so weird. So he goes down, he makes this bronze snake, he puts it on a pole, and the Bible says that whenever someone's bitten by these snakes, all they have to do is glance at that snake, that bronze serpent, and they're healed. Man, is that weird. Why is it that God made the image of the curse, the very thing that was causing destruction, the instrument of death, was about to be the source of life? Why did God do that? 
probably made no sense to them. In fact, for thousands of years, I bet you Jewish scholars probably studied that passage and scratched their heads and said, we have no idea what the heck that's all about. And it wasn't until a few thousand years later when Jesus Christ came that that passage finally made sense because Jesus himself explained it. In fact, you guys might not know this, but the most famous Bible verse in the world, John 3.16, did you know that the context of John 3.16 is all about this passage? It's a conversation that Jesus has with um, a religious leader, a guy by the name of Nicodemus, a Bible scholar. And and I I know you know John 3.16, but do you know John 3.14 and 15? Let me show it to you real quick. Check this out. John 3.14. Jesus says this, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, the bronze serpent, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Then look what it says next. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, Jesus goes to Nicodemus, this Bible scholar. He has a conversation. He says, hey, Nicodemus, you remember, you know the Bible, right? Yeah, yeah, I know the Bible. Remember uh, the bronze serpent? Yeah, I remember. That was a weird passage. Yeah, Nicodemus, that's me. I'm the bronze serpent. And, and, and Nicodemus must have been thinking, man, how? Like, what are you talking about? Well, think about it, right? Jesus says in the same way that the bronze serpent was lifted up, so the son of man has to be lifted up. Do you guys know what it means to be lifted up? Whenever Jesus talks about that in the Gospels, he's referring to the way in which he's going to die. He's talking about the cross. It's the same way the bronze serpent is lifted up, the Son of Man has to be lifted up. And, and, and look, in the same way that this instrument of death is going to become the source of life, Jesus says this instrument of death, the cross, this horrific, terrible thing, it's only by looking at this that you're going to find the source of life. So you guys, the Bible teaches us that when God rescued us, that when he died on the cross, that he didn't just save us from Satan, which he did. He did. When Jesus died on the cross, he crushed the serpent's head. The Bible tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just save us from sin, which he did. Last week, we talked about this. Jesus became the sacrificial atonement for our sins. He took on sin for us. But listen, the Bible tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, he endured and absorbed the wrath of God for our sake. Would you guys know, there's a passage right before Jesus goes to the cross. It's the night before, and he's praying to God. You guys remember this? He's in the garden, and he's praying to God. He's on his knees. The Bible says he's praying so hard that he's dripping sweat, sweat beads of blood. That's how hard he's praying. And the Bible says that he is distressed, and he is deeply troubled, which means he was horrified. And you know what he was horrified about? It wasn't simply because he was facing death. That's not why. The Bible tells us what he prays. You know what he prays? He says this. He says, Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. Cup. Now, when does the Bible talk about cup? What is that imagery, man? It's the wrath of God. And it was on the cross where Jesus went that the wrath of God was poured down on him. The horror of all of that was absorbed by Jesus. And when Jesus has rescued us, he's rescued us from Satan, yes, and he's rescued us from sin, but more than that, he's rescued us from God's wrath. He has taken it upon himself. Listen, if you say, I want a God of love, but I don't want a God of wrath, there's no way you can understand your value. Because a God who doesn't have to endure the cross and die for your sake, you never know the cost that he has paid for his great love for you. A God who says that he loves you and has to pay nothing for that love, 
You know nothing of his love for you, but a God who says, I'm gonna pay everything for you, man. You know your value. God loves you deeply, deeply. And, and his wrath is not in spite of his love. It's because of his love. You guys, this is why at the end of John chapter three, the passage we just looked at, it concludes by saying something fascinating. Here's what it says in that final verse in John chapter three. It says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. Jesus is the bronze serpent. He was lifted up. And when we believe in him and when we look to that act, that horrific act, that curse, that instrument of death, and we say, man, that is my hope. The Bible says that it's in that that we find life that when we put our faith in God, we don't have to work for it. We don't have to earn it. All we gotta do is look, believe in it, put our faith in it, and God will save us. God has saved us from wrath. I'm gonna ask the band to come up, and as they do, I just wanna conclude by addressing really just one audience today. Those of us who follow Jesus, this is our hope, right? This is everything for us. Christ has taken it for us, man. That is that, that, is, that demands all of our life and all of our affection. But I want to address really just one audience specifically today, and it's this. If you're a person who has not yet put your faith in Jesus, listen, I, we, we say this all the time here. If you're a person investigating God or investigating the Bible and you're not sure what you believe, we count it an absolute honor that you would, that you would allow us to speak into that investigation. You can go anywhere you want on Sunday morning. And we, we counted a privilege that you've come and allowed us to speak into that. But I hope, I hope that you understand that as it relates to this message today, there is an incredible amount of urgency because the Bible tells us, listen, that if you don't put your faith in Jesus, God's wrath remains on you. And I don't say that to scare you, but the truth is it's terrifying. The book of Hebrews says it, it is a terrible thing to be in the hands of the living God. And if we don't have anyone to absorb the wrath for us, God's wrath remains upon us. So listen, if you're a person that hasn't made that decision to follow Christ today, how about this? How about today? And how about it? Why? Put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Christ Today, look on him. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be perfect. None of us are. None of us have it together. You just have to look at it. Put your faith in it. Say, that, that's my hope, that, that horrific thing, Jesus dying on the cross, that's my source of life. Put your faith in it. And if you've never done it before, I'm telling you today, today, today is the day. Put the stake in the ground. Say, Christ, I'm, I'm all in for you. If you wanna make that decision today, I wanna encourage you, I'm gonna pray. And you can just follow me in my prayer. It's not a magic prayer. There's nothing magical about my prayers. But it's just, man, your heart to God's heart. Say, I'm putting my faith in you. Let's pray together. Father, we realize that, um, that left to our own devices, we are in a world of hurt. Father, we, uh, we have rebelled and sinned and grumbled and complained, and we have disobeyed you. And the truth is that it's because of that that the wrath of God is against us. And the Father, we realize that you care about us so much that you didn't simply save us from Satan and you didn't simply save us from sin, but you have delivered us from your wrath. So Father, today we place our hope 
in you. We look to Jesus, the bronze serpent who is lifted up on our behalf that we might be healed. And Father, we understand that it's on that cross that the wrath of God was absorbed and that we are clean, that we are forgiven because of the work of Christ. So we put our hope in it, we put our faith in it, and Lord, we praise you for it. So God, thank you. Thank you for your deep, deep, deep love for us. And I pray that we would live a life that's a reaction of a response of joy, a response of gladness, a response of thankfulness and gratitude for the great things that you've done for us. Father, I pray I'd lead you to these places in Christ's name. Amen.